once again open up to Romans, Romans 12. Hopefully, as we work through this, my hope is that it would be just a little more practical as we begin to work this out, and especially as you work your way through the rest of the chapter into this evening and get the full breadth of what God uh, wants to do in you and through you. And I would just love to read the text through and just pray once more. We'll start with verse 1 and we'll go to verse 8. Romans 12, 1 through 8. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each one of you. For just as each one of us, or each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Father, we do thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, who is our teacher. And I just pray that you would encourage us this morning. Just speak into our lives, speak into how we view ourselves, how we view our gifts, how we use them. I pray that this coming season of Grace London would be the most fruitful season they have ever had as a church. As they grow deeper with you and as a result of intimacy, that there would be an increase in ministry but we do ask that it would happen in that order. Please, God, would you help me just to teach these incredible men and women now in the power of your spirit? I ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. I read this, this article um, a few weeks ago written by an atheist. The title was, Whose Outer Voice Became Your Inner Voice? The gist was every one of us, as we're living life, we have like the voice of a judge in our minds, either affirming or condemning the different things that we do. The voice could sound like a harsh mother or a harsh father or a really good friend or a bully at school or um, an employer that is incredibly hard to please. The idea that he was getting at is all of our experiences, the ways in which people have spoken to us, to one degree or another, we've internalized that and we've taken that outer voice and made it our inner voice. And that voice essentially, you know, just kind of judges and assesses everything that we do. For example, when you do something stupid, which I do daily, (laughs) what do you tell yourself? Oftentimes it's reflected of what other people have told you. On the other hand, when you do something amazing, like if you've just smashed it at work, you know, you finish this project and best ever, what do you tell yourself? Chances are that came from another influence, somebody else that has spoken that over you. When you were angry, 
What voice do you hear in your mind? Whose outer voice has become your inner voice? The reason that that struck me is because we, we all know that that voice, what's being spoken to us and over us, it really shapes how we view ourselves. And Paul speaks into this whole idea of how we view ourselves, how we use what you have. And he, he goes so countercultural. He said, if you want to know who you really are, you need to know who God really is. So what I love about Romans 12, in fact, the entire epistle of Romans, is that in order to have a true and proper self-understanding, we have to first have a true and proper God-understanding. So it all begins there. It's, this is the God who's created all things, redeemed us in Christ, and we are to then view ourselves in light of that. After the verse we looked at earlier, he goes on to say, do not be conformed, verse 2, to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. He's saying you need to, you're, you're either going to be conformed by the way of the world or the word of God. That's, those are your two options. And so many of us are passively just being conformed by the way of the world. And he says, stop that. You need to be conformed by who God is and what God has said. We go wrong when we measure ourselves according to someone else's opinions, however great they might be, whether it's a family member or a friend. Paul is saying everything that you understand about yourself must come from what God says about you. His voice becomes our inner voice through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what he describes here in Romans. I think this is so vital because... Uh, another part of that article said, we essentially live in what he calls an opinionocracy, which I thought was a very clever term. We're governed by other people's opinions. Like, what are they saying about me? You know, what do they think of my work? What do they think of me? Like we're governed by that in so many ways. But Paul says you have to have a sober view of yourself. You must be measured according to what God has given you. Our minds need to be renewed. That's, that's why we're here for this, this, this weekend. That's, that's why you are here for your minds to be renewed and to become aware of the ways in which you have been shaped by those other voices. And God says, my voice needs to be that one voice that governs and directs your life. And the result of which is you begin to understand and appreciate and live in light of what God's will is. That's what he's talking about in verse 2. The more that we offer ourselves up as living sacrifices, we begin to understand what God's will is. And then as a result of that, we begin to appreciate what God's will is. Yes, his ways are good and right, like Psalm 119 says, and then you begin to live in light of that, put into practice what he has said for us to do. And then he turns a corner in verse three and begins to talk about not only how we view ourselves, but how we view our gifts. And I think this is so vital. And I hope for a few moments, um, it'll also be practical because how you understand your gifts says a lot about yourself. It says a lot about how you view yourself, especially in a society. And I think, you know, one of the questions I get um, a lot having moved from L.A. to London is like, what's different? What's the same? Like, how are you finding London? That's like the question. Well, the first question I get is you moved from where? <laughs> like, they're like, isn't the sun there? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, wow. Why did you move here? I'm like, God. And they're like, oh, my gosh. And it's a great evangelistic opportunity. 
But people always ask, what's the same? What, what's, what's different? And obviously there are many things that are different, but what surprised me is all the things that are the same. So many of the conversations I have, they're about career, they're about identity, they're about um, relationships, they're about all these things. And so many people are concerned with like, what am I supposed to be doing? How well am I doing that? What are my gifts? What are my talents? That's, that's the, you know, the currency of our culture. Like these are the things that I can do. And that mentality spills over into the church and it taints our idea of spiritual gifts. It taints our ideas of how we are to operate in the church. So I just want to look at this passage under a few simple headings. Like, where do these gifts come from that Paul is talking about? How are they to be used and why are they to be used? So first of all, what is is the origin of these gifts that he speaks of here? How are we to worship with our gifts? Where do they come from? And Paul is very clear here that God himself is the source. He says, by the grace of God given to me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each and every one of you. Paul says you need to have a sober, a right view of yourself. It cannot come from the opinion of your parents. It cannot come from the opinions of your colleagues and coworkers, nor your your brothers and sisters, nor the people that you live around. Ultimately, you need to be measured by what God says about you. You are measured according to what God gives. That's what he's driving home when he says the measure that God has distributed. But notice what he makes very clear. God himself is is the source. God himself is the source of everything good and specifically the gifts that we have, which is so radically different and so counterculture because usually we think of our talents and our gifts as something that we've like molded and crafted and then we present to the world for other people to affirm and accept. And now we have all these television shows where we vote you know, and we're like, oh, you were amazing. Like, it's essentially not just an opinionocracy, it's a meritocracy. It's how well we do. It's the stuff that we can do. That's what determines our value and our worth. The way in which most of us are assessed in our jobs are all on performance. That's why in many of your works, you have what's called performance reviews. And yet when Paul uses this, this whole idea of everything that you have comes from God, it just changes everything. Every gift that we have is a result of grace. These are grace gifts. That's where we get our word charismatic from. They're, these are grace gifts. And something that's been so helpful to, for me to understand is that God gives gifts, not gift vouchers. Let me explain what I mean by that. <laughs> when, when you... When I, when I give a gift to my children for a birthday, for example, I put some careful thought into it. My six-year-old is like into unicorns. So I'm like, okay, we're just in that stage of life. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever been to Smiggle. Anybody been to Smiggle? Okay, I live at Smiggle, okay? Smiggle is like, you know, unicorn glittery stationery. Like whoever had that idea was a genius and they're robbing all of us parents. Um, So I think about Paige's, you know, personality. I think about her personality and I get her a very specific gift. That is the gift that I'm giving to her. I want her to use that gift for a specific purpose. Now, on the other hand, if I gave her a gift voucher, it's like this generic blank check as it were. And if I were to give her that, she would then take it and she could use it on anything that she so desired. 
Many times when it comes to giftings in the church as a Christian, we don't want gifts. We want a gift voucher. We want God to just give us this kind of random gift card and then we get to determine like, hmm, well, I really like fancy myself as being, you know, a, a speaker. And so I would like this particular gift or, you know, I, I really like those gifts. And we tend to compare um, ourselves with each other. We begin to look at different people's gifts. Or maybe you, ha- you know what your gifts are, but you're really sad about them. And you're like, did these gifts come with a receipt? Can I exchange them? Can I return them? And God's like, no. And so I, it just needs to be very clear. God gives us gifts, not gift vouchers. It says he is the one that determines how they are used. It's not this blank thing. Oh, go do whatever you want. Here's why I say that. Because I see this so much in the church. It's very much a man-centric, me-centered view of Christianity. Where the idea is I go to church and God, here's my life plan. Here's the gifts that I would like to have. And God is like a cosmic vending machine and if I tithe enough and if I, you know, get involved and serve enough, he'll give me the gifts that I want and I can use them as I will. But scripture does not tell us that. Scripture said it's not about your mission, it's about God's mission. So many people are asking like, God, I have a mission. Can you help me fulfill that? And God says, no, I have a mission and I'm going to show you how I want to use you in my mission for my glory. That's what he says. And for that reason, I am going to give you gifts distributed as I want and as I will. God distributes. Paul says this elsewhere in Corinthians. These are grace gifts. They are not gift vouchers. He determines the using. He is the one that empowers us. And I don't know about you, but for me, that's very freeing because I am just a mess when it comes to trying to, you know, plan my own life or like, what am I good at? Or what is this? I just have to say, you know what, God, you're the one that knows what giftings I need. You're the one who determines how they should be used. And the point is not about me. See, so often when we talk about worshiping with our gifts, many of us struggle because we look at to our gifts to give us some kind of identity and security, and they were never meant to do that. So many of the conversations I have in church are the results of people having incredible anxiety about knowing what their gifts are. And to a certain degree, it's a good thing to want to know what our gifts are and how to use them. That's a good thing. But sometimes it goes too far. It's an over-anxiety because for so many of us, it's about identity. When you introduce yourself, what's usually the first thing you often tell? It's what you do. Here's what I do. And that happens even in the church. Your feeling of whether or not you're accepted is very often how much your gift is being used or recognized. And here's how you know that you're living as though your gifts give you your security and identity is when people don't thank you for it. Or when people don't acknowledge you for your gift inside, you're like, well, I'm not going to use my gifts again in this church if, you know, they won't recognize all that I do and all that I labor and, you know, they won't tell me how amazing my gift is. Then you realize, like, wait a minute, that means I'm looking to my gifts, not the giver, for my source of identity and security. Listen, just to say it as simply as possible, God does not give you gifts for your security. God does not give you gifts for your identity. He gives you himself. That's all the security and identity that you need. So when it comes to gifts, it's simply a matter of Holy Spirit, what do you want to do? See, this all flows from that present your body as a living sacrifice. 
it from that place, God, show me what you want to do in my life. I love the topic of spiritual gifts because it reminds me it's, it's not dependent upon my power, but on the very power of God. Paul says in Corinthians, he says, these gifts are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills, as he wills. This is what, about what he wants to do. Now, what are these gifts? We'll get practical um, just for a moment. There's no way we can be exhaustive, but hopefully it'll get us thinking very practically. Sometimes this supernatural grace transforms our natural abilities. You know, someone might have been a, a leader before coming to Christ, but what happens when they come to Christ is they are now supernaturally empowered to lead in a spirit-filled and fruitful way. So sometimes God takes natural abilities, which he gave us in the first place, to be used by the Holy Spirit. Other gifts are totally supernatural. Just these miraculous gifts given by God for his purpose. But all in all, they're given by him and they're given for his purpose. And here's one point that I think is very important to make. And especially in our churches, which we are charismatic, we, we believe in the present active ministry of the Holy Spirit who gifts us to manifest his presence. We believe that, right? We believe that. But here's what, what happens is we tend to, to measure our gifts in, in terms of comparing them and seeing if they're better or worse or more useful or not. For example, I love it in my, my community group. You know, someone might have a prophetic word, right? Everybody loves a prophetic word. And when that happens, everyone's like, God was here. And then there's the person who has the gift of administration, and they're like, nobody thanked me for unlocking the door tonight so that you could be here. I made a casserole. Oh, nobody thanked me for that. And so I, I've just found that there's this weird like hierarchy that sometimes we create like, oh, God was really there when that gift was used, but he was only sort of there when this gift was used. And I would just love to say, let's eliminate that. Uh, Dr. Don Carson wrote a book on uh, the gifts of the spirit. Listen to what he says. This is a great paragraph. He says, each believer is given some manifestation of the spirit. And at least in this text, there is no warrant for saying that one gift manifests the spirit's presence more than another. Even if some manifestations are more spectacular or more useful than others. No one gift shows the spirit more than others. That's incredibly encouraging to me. Every one of us is gifted by the spirit, but it's all going to look very different. The thing we need to remember is they come from God and they're used for his glory. So how are they to be used? Because that's what Paul's focus is here in verse 12. He goes on to list very specific gifts. Now here he only lists seven. If you look elsewhere in the new Testament, of course you will find other gifts mentioned. His purpose here is not to give you this one time exhaustive list of like all the spiritual gifts ever. That's not his purpose. He's, he's using it as a, a lesson. He's trying to use examples to simplify their purpose and their source. I would also like to point out as we look through um, these particular gifts that he's showing us that these gifts take place. Our giftedness, the way that we worship with our gifts is to take place in the whole context of the church, not just two hours on a Sunday morning. Sometimes we tend to associate the work of the Holy Spirit into like two or three different contexts. Like the Holy Spirit only works on like Sunday morning, 
or in your life group or in a particular prayer meeting. But rather, the Holy Spirit gifts you for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, powerful ministry. That is God's will for you. So when it comes to people looking for manifestations of the Spirit, I always say, don't put all of your eggs in one basket. God wants to work in every aspect of life. My mother, God bless her. My mother has been through like hell and back. And part of that was my brother and I's fault. Um, my dad died many, many years ago. Um, and my mother's just one of those people where she put up with my brother and I who were just absolutely evil. She put up with that. My dad was just unwell from the time I was a little kid, eventually died. Like m- my mom is just absolutely amazing. She's one of those people where you can tell she has suffered, but she's not become soured by that, that she's become sweetened by that. And whenever I call my mom and I ask for prayer, like she gets crazy. I'm like, mom, I just need prayer. She's like, Shanda, she's like tongues, <laughs> prophetic word, and then interpretation. And then like all of this. And I'm like, dang, you know, like, I, I just love that. I love the fact that randomly on a Monday afternoon, I can call and the Holy spirit is at work. So I just say that, I know this is like Holy Spirit 101 kind of stuff, but let's just be reminded of that. We don't want to limit the work of the Holy Spirit by constricting him just to one context or another. So Paul here is showing as an example, these these seven gifts, we'll just look at them very briefly, as an example of what their purpose is. And the first that he mentions there is the gift of prophecy. Notice he says, for just in verse four, as each of us, has one body with many members, these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace that is given to us. If your gift is prophecy, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. Verse six. Um, I I love Wayne Grudem's uh, systematic theology. I don't know if anyone's a fan. I like it. I love his, yeah, represent Wayne. (laughs) Which, by the way, I don't know if you've ever heard the man speak, but it's very different than when you actually read his systematic theology. He's very, like, professor-like, and I was like, oh, I just didn't have that voice in my head. That has nothing to do with this talk. Anyway, I love his definition of prophecy. It's simply this, reporting truth that God brings to mind. Very simple. Reporting truth that God brings to mind or speaking as inspired by God. The predominant theme there is not so much prediction, but it's this foretelling of the word, speaking to the needs of the heart in a direct and even perhaps spontaneous way. And I love that about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will often bring to mind the truth of God that that we need to hear that is applied in that particular moment in a very specific way in order to meet a need. It may be of a convicting nature. It may be of a comforting nature. But what Paul says here is prophesy. When that gift is at work, do it in a way that is in proportion to faith. Now, what does that mean? It can mean two things, and perhaps it actually means both together. Some of the commentators say that when Paul uses this sentence, he means prophesy in accordance with the standard of faith. And there he's talking about doctrine. Make sure that when you prophesy, it's lining up with biblical doctrine. And of course, we know that's true. The book of Thessalonians, Paul writes that we need to to do what with prophecy? Test it. And hold fast that which is good. 
But there's also a sense in which he means prophesy in accordance with the faith that God gives you for that. Possibly both are true. Scripture speaks about both. But it's important to note that when this gift is at work, that it doesn't carry some sort of absolute authority, but it's a tentative authority. It's to be governed by the word of God. Now, there's a lot more that could be said on that. I'll leave that to Andrew and all the different times that you guys speak on it. But very practically, I think, what does the church look like when the Holy Spirit moves and gifts us? Well, one of those is going to be this prophetic word. And it's something we want to learn and and grow into. Like, God, what truth would you bring to mind? And we want to make sure that it is in accordance with our faith. So notice, he's not just listing a gift. He's always adding some kind of exhortation with it. If prophecy prophesy in accordance with your faith. And if it's truly from God, it's going to bring about incredible life-giving transformation in the church. Now that's kind of one of the more like, wow, gifts. But then what's the next gift he mentions? Service. Who in here is like, God, give me the gift of service. Has anyone ever prayed that ever? (laughs) Like, you know, in a church service, we're usually like, give me the gift of healings. I, I, to this day, I've never actually heard people say, God, I strongly desire the gift of administration. And yet that gift is so incredibly meaningful and powerful. And I'm just so tired of, you know, measuring gifts in all these different ways. We just need to acknowledge the power of each one. The way in which that word in the Greek could be defined is activities of a very practical nature. And what I love about it is it's so countercultural because that word servant, of course, in Paul's Greco-Roman culture would have been viewed as, as, a, as a very, you know, kind of low sense of inferiority with it. And yet as a Christian, we understand that the opposite is true because Jesus Christ was a servant. How dare we minimize the gift of service? Jesus said, I came to serve, not to be served. And in a broader general sense, we are called to serve. In fact, The church offices that we know as elders and deacons, the word deacon is simply another way it could be translated as servants. That these men and women are called to fulfill in an ongoing, more official way what everybody in the church should be doing, and that is to serve. Here's my little pastoral point, and no, Andrew did not pay me to say this. You should not be surprised if Grace London calls you to serve. You are a servant And in a specific sense, some of you are going to be really gifted by the Holy Spirit. Like you just have this really incredible, practical ability to help the ministry of the church move forward. God bless you. God bless you. And if you serve, Paul says, serve. Just serve as unto the Lord. If serving, he says, then serve. Don't just talk about it. Do it. Put it into practice. This could take a thousand different forms, but this gift should not be neglected. He then goes on to talk about a speaking gift, teaching. The interpretation and application of scripture, communicating and passing on the once and for all delivered truth to us, to the rest of the church. And of course, this is to be done uh, by the elders within the church. I understand that uh, you guys just appointed elders. Was that last week? That is, I saw it on Instagram, by the way. Which- which is, and I was so happy. I just want to say that. I'm like so glad to see that. That was just amazing. 
And you know that one of the responsibilities of the elders is to have that authoritative teaching in the church. But there are also many other ways in which this gift can and should be used. And so if you have that gift, use it. Use that gift in a way that it is right and it is appropriate under the leadership of the church and under the authority, ultimately, of the word of God. If this gift is present, cultivate that. Ask God to empower it. By all means, use it. And then he goes on to the gift of exhortation, which uh, if you haven't figured it out yet, I've been told ever since I was a new Christian, I have the gift of exhortation, which I think just means I talk really loudly, but I'm not quite, I'm not quite sure. But what I love here in the NIV, it's translated as encouragement. But in some ways, it was actually used as a military term. It was a sharp encouragement. Like if you were a soldier on the front line and you were being pushed back and you were alone and vulnerable, you would exhort another soldier to come alongside. Like, hey, I need some help. I'm alone. Can you come alongside me? I need your help. And my goodness, how much we need the gift of exhortation in the church. Because so many people, I think our culture wants to dominate us with fear. And we need men and women with the gift of exhortation say, you know what? The devil would love to silence us. The devil would love us to be passive, unassertive victims in this culture. But the gift of exhortation reminds us we are in Christ. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's stand together and let's wage spiritual battle. Like, let's exhort one another. Hebrews, I'm probably going to misquote this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, it says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but do, no, do so more and more as you see the day um, of Jesus Christ approaching. Exhort one another. Meaning that we, there's a temptation to, to disappear a little bit in the church. Or to just slowly, like we've all seen it happen, where at first you kind of serve actively and then slowly but surely you start to disappear and everyone's like, oh, so-and-so hasn't been to life group, you know, in so many weeks. Or we haven't seen them at church in so many weeks. They need exhortation. Like, come on, we're in a battle. We need to stand side by side. Now is not the time to abandon our post. We need the gift of exhortation at work within the church. If serving, verse 7, then serve. If teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. It's not condemnation. It is encouragement. And then he goes on to speak of generosity. If you have the gift of giving, then give generously. And there are obviously many ways in which we can be generous. And in one sense, we're all called to be generous, but some people, God has given them the means, incredible resources, whether it's financial or practical, whatever it might be. God has blessed you very specifically in that way. I've seen people with this gift. And when you see them give generously, it's incredible resourcing the ministry of the church, resourcing men and women. I love to see that. And Paul is saying, by all means, do not be passive. I wonder how many people have actually sought this spiritual gift. God, give me the gift of generosity in an incredibly greedy culture. See, because when it comes especially to money, we all know that's like the topic that's kind of, I mean, I've, in, in my, you know, brief ministry experience of pastoring a church, you know, I've had to preach on all these topics, you know, from sexuality and all this other kind of stuff, but, and you'll get a particular response, but man, when you preach on money, everyone's like, <laughs> You know, like rarely does anybody come up to a, you know, a prayer ministry and say, I just want to be freed from greed. Like rarely does it happen. I, I'm reminded of the story that John Wesley once told during the time in which the great awakening was happening. And a report came to him, you know, Mr. Wesley, this person that, you know, who was previously not a Christian, they've been converted. And he said, Hmm, is his wallet converted? 
I was like, ah, yes, that is the question. (laughs) Do we see that transformation in the way that we even use what God has given to us? If you have the gift of giving, give generously. Don't hold back. Give liberally. Why? Because that's the way that God gives. One of the things I love doing, in in Grace London, remind me, you guys take a, a collection, an offering, right? Do you do it online? Is it just whatever? What I love is that whatever you communicate, whether it's online, in a service, whatever that's communicated, what I love about that is that most non-Christians, they associate money as though Christians give out of guilt. And what I love is to correct that idea. No, we're called to give because God gives. That's who he is. He's a generous God. So anytime we talk about giving in general, the motivation for it is we have a generous God. In giving, give generously. He goes on to say, in leading, then lead diligently. This could happen in many contexts, whether it's within the church, it's within the home, it's within your community, um, it's within your practical teams, you know, in church. He says, do it with zeal. That's the, the way the word can be translated. I love that. Do it with zeal. So notice, he's not just talking about what you should do, but how you should do it. Do it with zeal. So the question is not how do you, or rather, the question is not just if you lead, but how do you lead? How do you lead? Are you leading with zeal, remembering that Christ himself is your leader, and we're called to reflect that? And in mercy, showing mercy. When you do it, do it cheerfully. Many of the commentators say specifically, though we could be merciful in all kinds of general ways, this is very specifically about taking care of the needs of the weak and of the poor. And again, while everyone is called to do this in a general sense, some are very gifted to do this in a specific sense. That The Holy Spirit has really called them and empowered them and gifted to do just that. And Paul says, when you do it, do it with cheerfulness. Again, he's so concerned about the attitude with which we do it. Why? Because we are to reflect the gospel in all that we do. These are signs of life. So I want us to see that all of these gifts, they actually reflect the very character and nature of God. And that's the the third and final point is why are these gifts given? So they come from God. How are they to be used? They're to be used in, in the ways that Paul here instructs us and elsewhere in scripture. But ultimately, why does God give us gifts? So that they reflect him. That's why we should be men and women who passionately pursue the gifts of the spirit because they show off God. I love that. Like I want, I want people to come into a church and see the work of the spirit, not so that they can say, wow, you're gifted, but wow, what a great God. What a great God you have that I would see a generous church. What a great God you have that we would see encouragement. What a great God you have that we would see this teaching and leadership. What an incredible God you have. That's why I'm passionate about wanting to see the gifts of the Spirit at work. They manifest the character of God. In fact, I love, I wrote this down, the way that uh, Peter talks about it. He says, as each one has received a gift, 1 Peter 4.10, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. Whoever speaks, speaks as the oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves with the strength that God supplies, in order that... Listen, I know it's warm and I know it's the afternoon. I know it's gloriously shiny outside, but just listen for another moment. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our gifts aren't about us. They are about Jesus Christ. That is what they're ultimately for. 
And the fruit of that is unity in the body. Unity in our church. So often, the why question of why we serve and how we use um, our gifts goes unanswered. And I remember a story. To this day, I actually can't find the original source of it, but it was apparently told by Charles Spurgeon, and I'm probably going to butcher it. May he rest in peace and rise in glory. But um, the story basically goes like this. There was, there was once a farmer who lived in the land of a great, great king. And the farmer was so grateful to the generosity and kindness of this king that he went to his farm land and, I can't remember what the vegetable is, I'm going to use carrots. So he took his carrots and he said, out of my garden, I want to give my great king these carrots. And so the servant to the farmer goes to the king and says, oh, great king, you're wise and merciful. And I have this little farm and I brought you my carrots. And the king goes, oh, I, I, I'm so grateful that you brought me your carrots because you have been so generous with that. I'm going to give you another plot of land for your farm. And the farmer walked away just, you know, over, uh, just overjoyed. In the same room, there was a man who was a stable hand. He worked taking care of the horses that belonged to the king. And he thought to himself, man, if that guy gets another field for some carrots, what will the king give me if I give him a horse? So he goes back to the stable and he's like, oh, I'm going to find the best horse in the entire stable. I'm going to groom them and you're going to present this horse to the king. And so this stable hand, he comes to the king and he says, oh, king, you're so merciful and, and great. I present this horse to you. And the king says, thanks. And the stable hand's like, oh, yeah. I gave you the horse. <laughs> I'm totally speculating right now. This is not where the story probably goes. But at some point, the servant goes, well, I, I, don't I get anything? And the king's like, I'm sorry, I don't understand the question. He said, well, I saw the farmer, and he gave you the carrots, and you gave them this whole other plot of land. I give you this incredible horse, and you don't give me anything. And the king said, ah, oh, the farmer gave me the carrots, but you gave yourself the horse. <laughs> and when I heard that, I, whoever said it, <laughs> I thought in so many ways, that's how we view gifts. That's why we serve. Ultimately, to get something out of it. Like, where's my reward? Where's my praise? Where's my accolade? Where's, like, you know, where's the affirmation? And some of us were a little more passive-aggressive about it. You use your gifts in a way that's, like, really great, and somebody affirms you, and you're like, don't. Stop. Don't stop. <laughs> but inside, you're like, tell me, affirm me. Um, people say it out loud in LA. They don't say it out loud uh, anywhere else, really. <laughs> this is basically therapy for me for all my pastoring years in, in LA. Here's why I say that. I talk to so many people, even in my own church, who are like, I just want to be used. And while that not in and of itself is a bad thing, that's not the main goal. It's not about being used. It's about knowing God. And as a result, reflecting that in the way that he uses us. And I just think that is so important for us to keep that in mind because there's so many ways in which we can go wrong with this. And we can just serve out of ulterior motives and ways that can just create all kinds of, of unhealth within the church. And we need to be proactive and view our gifts as worship. Whatever he has comes from God. Whatever purpose he has, it's not about my mission, it's about his mission. And whether or not I get praise or thanks for it, it doesn't matter. 
One of my favorite verses that Paul says, although every pastor says that, like the whole Bible is my favorite, but one of the verses that has stood out to me ever since I was a new Christian is at the end of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians when Paul talks about how he's pouring out his life for the Corinthian church. And if you've ever read Corinthians, it's like Christians gone wild and you know, most of them are like ungrateful and whatever. But there's this one little line that Paul uses. He says, I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more I love you, the less I am loved. He says, I, I will, I'm glad to spend my life for you as the church, even though the more I love you, the less I'm loved. I don't care because I'm loved by Christ. Like, that's what it's about. It's about being motivated and compelled by the love of Christ. Now, really practically, before I, before I end, here's a few practical signs that you're really getting this. A few practical signs that I've noticed in my own life that you're actually getting this whole idea of, of grace gifts. I'll just give you four. Here's the first one. You can receive criticism without being destroyed by it. You really know that gifts are grace gifts, that gifts are all about worship when you can receive criticism without being destroyed by it. Because when your gifts are all about your identity, when your gifts are all about how you measure your value and your worth and somebody criticizes you, you're not just depressed, you're devastated by it. Because that, that's like you. It, it's almost like you're handing in a CV. I don't, I don't know if you um, remember. It was just a few months ago, the, the, the adverts that were all over London. Uh, I can't remember what company it was. But it showed a person holding up a piece of paper like this. And it says, you know, like, um, it was like, this is my CV. Like, here's why you should accept me. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's a sermon metaphor. Because that's all pastors do. And I was like, that is modern society. It's like, we hold up and we say like, I, like my CV, this is me. It's all of my credentials. And therefore you knew it to affirm my talents and my gifts because that is who I am. But God says you were never accepted on the basis of your gifts, but by the mercy of God. So you really know that you're getting this when you can receive criticism without being destroyed by it. Because if, like Paul says here in Romans 12, if you have a sober view of yourself, then you'll understand you need to grow. And I, I love being around mature people, probably because I'm not one, but I, I love being around like a mature person. Because when you hear a mature person get critiqued, they receive it. They're like, oh, yeah, thank you for that. Like, I really need to grow in that area. I'm like, wow, I sound like a pedantic five-year-old when I get critiqued, but, you know, you set a great example for me. So may we, we learn to grow into that and say, you know what? I assume, like, my, my view, my biblical view of myself is that I'm a sinner saved by grace and I need to be sanctified. So, of course, I'm going to need to grow. Of course, I'm going to need to grow in my gift. So, thank you, church, for telling me that. Thank you for pointing that out. I add one little word of pastoral wisdom. If you're the one doing the critique, can you just be loving? <laughs> I feel like some people in the church think it's their spiritual gift just to go around and critique everyone. I don't think that's a spiritual gift. I'm not sure, but I don't think it is. Some people just love to say, hey, that was, that, that was wrong. Like, oh, was there anything right? No. <laughs> okay. Anything encouraging? No. Like, okay. With encouragement, yes. You can receive criticism without being destroyed by it. But you can also, secondly, you can receive encouragement without becoming arrogant. So on the flip side, maybe you know, your gift was used in a very powerful way. And people come up and they're like, that was amazing. <laughs> and you're like, no, not really. Well, it kind of was, you know, who are we kidding? It was amazing. You know, like you're like leading worship or you like, you prayed this prayer and people are like, 
that prayer changed my life. And you're like, I mean, I just pray like that all the time. You know, I just, <laughs> epic prayers. It's just my gift to the, to, to the church. You know what? And <laughs> I, I see this happen all, all the time. Most people don't say this out loud, but for many of us, we actually think this, but you can receive encouragement without becoming arrogant because you know, it doesn't come from you. It's the Holy spirit at work. When I was younger in ministry, I, because I wanted to fight against arrogance, I was so insecure about, you know, giftings that when someone would encourage me, I would give the typical Christian response. I'm like, oh, praise God. Um, hallelujah. From whom all good blessings flow. It was definitely God. It was not me. And then people are like, Tim, I just wanted to affirm your gift. I'm like, yeah, it's all, it's all about him. It's all about him, people. So what I'm not saying is that you adapt this like false humility, like, you know, Andrew, that was a good pre. Oh, it, it, it was the work of the Holy Spirit today. Let me tell you. Like, yeah, we, we know. In fact, one of the greatest um, examples I have from this is several years back, I had this total fanboy, nerdy pastor privilege when I got to go to Australia and speak with Tim Keller. And if you're me, you're like, <laughs> you're like, I just got to hang out with him. Like, I like your, I, I like your book. It's really good. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so we're speaking at this conference. <laughs> Sorry, and Andrew's like, why did I bring this guy? <laughs> so I had this moment, we're like in the back green room before this conference, and I just, I don't know, I, I was really grateful for all the stuff that he's written. And I just said, you know, Tim, I just want to really, you know, thank you, like, it's just been so helpful, prodigal God, loved it, counterfeit God, oh, you know what I really love? It's like getting really geeky. And he just looks over and he's like, thanks. I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, that's probably just like, Keep it simple, you know, just like whatever. Like you, I'm sure you've all heard, I think it was Andrew Murray who said, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. You're just, it's not about me. So you can receive criticism without being destroyed by it. You can receive encouragement without becoming arrogant. Two more practical ones. You can also learn to say no to what you cannot do or shouldn't do. See, so many experiences I've had in the church is with people who burn out. How many times have I had people in the church say, pastor, I'm just burnout. I'm just burnout. And there are legitimate reasons for burnout, but a lot of burnout comes because people simply don't know how to say no. They don't know how to say no. They just say yes to everything because of a guilt complex and, or they feel like they get their identity from serving. So they never say no. They just say yes to everything. And then all of a sudden they realize, wow, I'm doing too much. And then they burn out and then it becomes painful. But a true sober view of yourself is recognizing, okay, God has given me these gifts. God's given me this stage of life. Right now, I have a wife and I have three kids. I can only do so much. So some of the people in my church are like, let's hang out on Thursday night. I'm like, I can't hang out on Thursday night. I got to like put my kids to bed. I'm happy if I'm in bed by like 930. Last night, some of you probably saw me like, you know, make a beeline at 10 o'clock. I'm like, this is way past my bedtime. Like I don't do icebreakers past nine o'clock, you know, <laughs> like, you know, you've been married for a long time when you turn to your spouse and you're like, isn't eight 30, a little late to start Netflix. You know, <laughs> like that's when you know you have kids, but you learn to recognize the limits that God has given you, the gifts that God has given you. And you're okay with saying no to something that is outside of that. You learn to say no for the right reasons. Now I have one more practical encouragement and it's for those of you who are thinking, yes, he told me I could say no. Cause the other thing that the Holy spirit guards you against is laziness. See, some of you are like, yep, yeah, I don't want to burn out. So I don't do anything. 
at Grace London. I do nothing. They call the serve. I'm like, not me, because I know how to say no, people. (laughs) Because finally, the last practical thing is you learn to say yes to what you can and should do. You learn to say yes. The thing about gifts that Jesus told us, you can't bury them. You cannot bury them. If God has given you a gift, use it. Use it. Say yes to those right opportunities. Say yes when God's making it clear that this is an opportunity for you to serve. Look for needs in the church. And if you are gifted and called to do that, then by all means, do it. But friends, never operate as though God is looking for your giftedness. He just desires for you to be near him. He wants us to know him. And as a result... All ministry flows from intimacy. And it is because we are worshipers first and workers second. And I think so many of us go wrong in our gifts when we reverse that order. We're workers first and worshipers second. That's when people burn out. We are worshipers first and worshipers second. As a result of this nearness to God, ministry becomes fruitful. Because God... All, all the gifts that, that we have, they should ultimately point to the giver himself. Because when I look at a list like this, I don't see myself, I see Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true prophet who speaks truth to our hearts. He's the prophet of God who is indeed the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one from whom we need to receive his word of truth. Jesus Christ is the true servant. He did not come to be served. He came to serve. And in giving his life for us, he met and fulfilled our deepest and truest need. He served us even when we didn't think we needed to be served. Jesus Christ is the true teacher. He came to teach us who God is and to show us the way that we are to live. He is the one from whom we need to open our hearts and say, Jesus, teach me. Even if I don't feel like learning, I want to hear your teaching. Jesus is the true encourager. He's the one that calls us to action. He's the one that calls us to repent and trust in him. He's the one that supplies the Holy Spirit into our lives that we might actually live in light of this and not in our own strength. Jesus Christ is the generous gift giver. He had the ultimate provision and yet he gave it all away for us even when we weren't looking for him or didn't realize that we needed it. Jesus is the ultimate leader. If you want to be a good leader, you must be well-led. And there is no greater leader than Jesus Christ. He is our great leader who gave himself for us, gave himself on the cross to die for our sins, rose again to give us a new identity, a new eternity. I love how Hebrews says it. He's the captain of our faith. He is the captain of our faith. All, all of that secular language is I'm the master of my own you know, destiny. I'm the... Um, whatever, I'm going to butcher that Invictus song, whatever. But it's not true. Jesus Christ is our leader. Jesus Christ is our captain. And Jesus Christ is the ultimate mercy giver. And when he gave himself in mercy, he gave it with joy. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of an expression of all the gifts mentioned here. And it points us back to him. Anytime you see the gifts at work, you should think of Jesus. I always want when like, people come to, to our church, when people come to Grace London, that they would not say, what a service, but what a savior. That they wouldn't say, oh, what a great service. They had this, they had that, they did this. Our hope, should it not be, what a great savior. 
what a great Savior. When I saw their gifts, when I saw the way that people were, were serving them, it made me think of Jesus. Or maybe for a non-Christian, they come in, they see what's happening there. They're like, who is it? Why are you doing this? It's, it's Jesus. And so the posture that we need to have when it comes to worshiping God with our gifts is the posture of a recipient. We come empty-handed. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. That is the posture of our church. That is the posture, it should be, of our lives. All of these activities are supernaturally empowered by the Holy Spirit to manifest the presence of God. And so the Spirit is always leading us to a deeper and greater dependency upon him. And my simple question is this. I know that theologically, we're all charismatic. Functionally, are we charismatic? And I mean that in the truest sense of the word. Are we dependent people? Francis Schaeffer was one of the great Christian thinkers of the last century. You can read his books. They're astounding. And he was the guy you wanted at your conference to tell you about like how to face all the cultural challenges of the day. But what surprised me is he was asked this question, what is the greatest challenge to the modern church? And you could hear a pin you know, drop when I was reading how this was described. It was almost as if, you know, I wasn't there, obviously, too young. When he was asked that question, you could just imagine everybody waiting, like, what's this? He's like the, you know, kind of Bible culture guru. What is the greatest obstacle to the ministry of the modern church? And what is surprising is what he didn't say. He didn't say it was the rise of secularism. He didn't say it was the rise of postmodernism. He didn't say it was lack of funding. He didn't say it was lack of like church branding. He didn't say it was, you know, like um, the, the shrinking presence of the church in the public square. He said the greatest obstacle to the modern church is ministry in the flesh. He said the problem is never in what lies outside of the church. It's what's happening within the church. What we need is a quiet and dependent heart on the power of the Holy Spirit. My great concern as a husband, as a father, as a leader in the church, is to do ministry in the flesh. And that should be your concern. Being Grace London in the ministry of the flesh, we don't want it, we want ministry in the spirit, amen? Father, we do pray that you would keep us far away from ministry in the flesh. I just sense that very strongly you want you want to drive that home to our hearts. Having begun in the spirit, are we going to be made perfect in the flesh? Absolutely not. God, together we confess any area of life or giftedness where we are just operating in the flesh. God, forgive us. And thank you that you are the merciful and cheerful giver. 
We remember, Jesus, you said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So right now, we just ask. There's no formula. We can't manufacture your presence. We just say, Holy Spirit, will you come? Holy Spirit, will you gift us? Holy Spirit, will you fill us? That we might be fruitful, that we might show off Jesus to London. That's what we want. Do that, God. Do that, Lord.